From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Let's start with a definition. What is interreligious dialogue? It's people of different religions or worldviews talking to each other. And globalization means that everyone talks to everyone else. Hare Krishnas are dancing in front of old medieval cathedrals in Europe. Uh, Korean missionaries with suitcases full of Bibles. Protestant Korean missionaries smuggle themselves into China or India, and so on and so forth. Peter Berger is a highly respected scholar of sociology. He's retired from Boston University now, but he spent much of his career looking at pluralism, how many cultural and religious groups can coexist in the same place at the same time. Uh, Interreligious dialogue, people usually think there are various uh, representatives of religions, rabbis and Buddhist monks and cardinals sitting together in hotels, drinking coffee, and uh, talking about their religion. Fine. But pluralism also means that this goes on all the time, from kindergarten to workplaces, among ordinary people, uh, to, uh, uh, well, no neighbors talking across the backyard. So I would say, as a sociologist, I would say that this other interreligious dialogue between ordinary people who talk to each other is in the end more important than the fat volumes produced by philosophy or theology professors. Of course, this neighborhood mingling assumes a level of religious freedom that doesn't exist in many places. Countries where political and religious leaders dictate how you dress, what you do, and what you believe. We call them fundamentalists. They can be of any faith or none. And they don't want uh, dialogue, Uh, they don't want doubts, they don't want uh, uncertainty. And uh, if you don't agree with them, they want to convert you or kick you out or, in extreme case, kill you. Uh, That's also going on at the same time. So we have a world where people are increasingly knit together, uh, talk to each other, sometimes become friends. And then you get others who want to stop this whole business and set up a state, or at least a mini-state, some kind of a sect, which shuts itself up with its alleged certainties. And these two things are going on simultaneously. And it's in this complicated reality we set today's program, where we will examine when and how people of different religions can find common ground and learn to live together. But before we get into the specifics, let's look at the numbers. The Pew Research Center recently released a report outlining the future of world religions, It includes population growth projections for the next 35 years. One of the most significant findings, by 2050, the Muslim population will nearly equal the Christian population worldwide. To talk about the implications of this, especially in the West, I spoke with Jack Goldstone, a professor of public policy at George Mason University and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Well, let's talk about the findings in this Pew report and which statistic, which finding really leapt out at you and surprised you? What surprised me the most was how many unaffiliated people are projected to be in North America and in Europe. It's a much bigger increase than the increase in the Muslim population, which is the one, of course, that people focus on. And unaffiliated meaning maybe doesn't state a religion or atheistic or agnostic? Could be any of those. Uh, Basically, it's someone who doesn't participate in regular activities in a particular church or synagogue or place of worship and who doesn't identify with any organized religion. 
They can still be people who believe strongly in a supreme power, can be people who have a personal belief or uh, have other ways of practice, but they're not associated with any of the organized religions. So what does that say to you in terms of what the practical effects are in terms of how people organize themselves? It explains to me why people are so worried about the growth of Islam in Europe. Uh, it's not that Muslims are going to overtake Christians. That's not going to happen. Uh, Muslims will remain 10% or less of the population. But with so many people who are unaffiliated, there are large numbers of people who are kind of just leaving the field open for whoever has the strongest beliefs. Uh, and that will, of course, make the influence of even a small number of Muslims much stronger. If you don't have a large number of people who are actively committed in practicing other faiths. And what does it mean for communication between these various religious groups and the unaffiliated? Well, you know, it's going to be tough. If you are a member of a mosque, a member of a Christian church, a member of a congregation, uh, you do have someone who speaks for you, someone who reaches out to you. Uh, you may have social events. You may have uh, church media that expresses beliefs. But if you're unaffiliated, you can feel lost. There's really no one speaking for you, no one speaking directly to you. Uh, it's amazing to me that so many people are choosing to be unaffiliated, but it suggests that the organized faiths are not meeting their needs. And, and these people, I think, uh, are going to be not just unaffiliated, but unhappy. Uh, they will increasingly, I fear, uh, be resentful of those that are involved in organized religion. And I think we're going to be looking at a bigger set of religious conflicts in the future than I'd anticipated. Hmm, hmm. Well, that's interesting because you always hear that with increased secularization comes increased democracy and increased levels of stability. We don't seem to be seeing that. Uh, seems to me that with increased levels of secularization, we're also getting higher levels of anxiety. People who are not affiliated are worried about people who they see as zealous or ideologically committed. People who are unaffiliated are not as well socially integrated. They don't have pastors or counselors handy who they can see every week. In times of slow economy and a lot of immigration and a lot of social turmoil, uh, I really worry that these very large numbers of unaffiliated people will not be comfortable at all with the rapid changes around them, and they won't have anything to rely on to help them get through it. And so are we seeing shades of that in Europe right now with the migrant crisis? I think we are. Uh, to a great deal, the uh, anger about migrants and the anxiety uh, is very strong in countries that have the highest number of unaffiliated, uh, places like the Netherlands. What about here in the United States when you have, as you said, an increasing number of unaffiliated, but also a lot of immigrants from Central and South America uh, who are largely Catholic? Well, Americans may not appreciate how different our situation is from that in Europe. First of all, America remains a much more religious country than most of the other wealthy countries of the world. And I think that's because of the freedom Americans have always had to choose and define their faith. When the state is out of it and people choose their own faith uh, without feeling that it's convention or driven by uh, someone outside, they're more attached to it. It's theirs. And America has this huge diversity of congregations, uh, all kinds of Christian denominations, all kinds of other faiths here. Uh, in America, Muslims, for the most part, blend in. Uh, they don't stand out or feel threatened. Many communities have been here for a very long time. Uh, and America is a real 
relatively a success story with regard to migration. Everybody has a friend or a relative who was a migrant here at some point in the past. And so while we have anxieties about legal versus illegal migration, uh, most people take migration as part of American history, part of what built this nation. That's not true in Europe. Europe was a country of out-migration. It has only very recently, only in the last 25, 30 years, uh, been an area with a significant number of migrants from outside Europe coming in. So is this to say that it's basically time that fixes these religious and social tensions and that having an active dialogue between different religious groups is not that effective? Having an active dialogue is part of it. Uh, You have to be patient. You can't expect things to change overnight. But uh, I've looked into some of the issues of uh, conflict over religious differences in London. Uh, Demographers and sociologists have tried to figure out which neighborhoods show the most uh, racial hatred and anger. Uh, And it turns out it's not what you'd expect. The areas that have the highest level of immigration actually adapt fairly quickly. And within a few years, as people get to know their neighbors and co-workers, they come to accept them, and they don't seem so different if they see them in daily life. It's the areas that have only begun to be impacted by immigration, communities where uh, somewhere between 5 and 15% of the population are recent immigrants. That's where people feel the most shaken up and you find the most anger. People see the entrance of outsiders, people they don't understand, people who they're not familiar with, as a threat, but they also haven't yet learned to get to know them as people. They haven't started working with them, seeing them as neighbors, as people in the line at the supermarket or people watching kids at the PTA. Uh, So for a lot of places, that's where Europe is. Jack Goldstone, professor of public policy at George Mason University and a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Let's look at Europe more closely now, specifically Holland. Until 9-11, that country prided itself on its tolerant attitude toward its minority Muslim population. But now new extremes have emerged. That's Pim Fortown, an openly gay sociology professor whose anti-Muslim, anti-immigration platform nearly made him prime minister in 2002. He was assassinated right before the election by a left-wing animal rights activist. Then, in 2004, this happened. Goedemiddag. Op de Dam in Amsterdam wordt vanavond een bijeenkomst gehouden ter nagedachtenis aan filmregisseur en schrijver Theo van Gogh, die vanochtend in Amsterdam werd vermoord. That's a Dutch news story on the murder of film director Theo van Gogh on a street in Amsterdam. His murderer was a self-described jihadist who says he killed van Gogh as retribution for making a film called Submission about a young Muslim woman who is raped and beaten by her husband. With the rise of Islamic extremism in Europe has come well-publicized attacks on Jewish institutions and places of worship. Now, Muslim and Jewish communities view each other with increased suspicion. Two activists, one Jewish and one Muslim, have become friends despite all this. Reporter Jonathan Gruber has their story. The man you hear speaking in this Dutch TV report is Rabbi Lodi van de Kamp. This bearded, bespectacled, yarmulke-wearing rabbi is a 66-year-old retired director of an Orthodox Jewish school in Amsterdam. 
He's pretty well known in the small Jewish community here. Back in 2010, Rabbi Fundacom's students told him that Muslim youths were hurling racist epithets at them and that it was happening all over the city. The rabbi is what you'd call visibly Jewish. So, together with a couple of his students and a film crew from the local Jewish broadcaster, he walked through Amsterdam's Muslim-majority neighborhoods. This is audio from that program that aired on Dutch national television the next day. At one point, they walk past a group of teenagers. One of the boys stands up, thrusts his arm into the air, and gives Rabbi van de Kamp a Hitler salute. Because he was together with a few friends and he found a good fun to, uh, you know, it's, it's a chance in a lifetime. You meet three Jews with kippahs in, in Amsterdam West, you know, when does that happen? You know, th that's how things work. For a few days following the broadcast, this incident dominated the larger discussion of the integration of Muslims into Dutch society. One Dutch Moroccan activist saw the program and later facilitated a meeting between Rabbi van de Kamp and the boy who gave him the Hitler salute. They talked and became friends. But since then, attacks by Muslim extremists on Jews and Jewish institutions have become common in Europe, such as the 2014 attack on the Jewish Museum in Brussels and, of course, the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris early this year. Similar incidents were happening on a smaller scale in Holland, too. There was this riots in The Hague, and somebody yelled at the police, conquer Yodem, cancer Jews. Some Muslims have tried to address the problem. Fatima Elatik is a former city alderman for Amsterdam East for the center-left Labour Party. Her colorful headscarves and red lipstick are as recognizable throughout the city as her outspoken views on tolerance. The Jewish community is a very small community in our society, and when I hear Jewish people say, I want to leave, I don't feel safe, that hurts me. Salam Shalom, which means peace in Arabic and Hebrew, is an organization founded by Lodi van de Kamp, Fatima Elatik, and others in 2014, with one simple but ambitious goal, to keep the conflict between Jews and Muslims in the Middle East from spilling over to Amsterdam. It's not the first organization of its kind in the Netherlands. After Theo van Gogh's murder in 2004, Amsterdam's then-mayor, Joop Cohen, himself Jewish, called together the leaders of the Muslim and Jewish communities. This included Rabbi van de Kamp and Fatima Elatik. They formed a group to discuss the tensions between Jews and Muslims. But the group was widely criticized as a tea-drinking, subsidized talking shop, even by its own members. After 10 years, they had made little progress, often getting caught up in city politics and bureaucracy. To no one's surprise, the group was disbanded last year by the current mayor. But Eilatik and Van de Kamp were undeterred. They still saw a real need for a place to continue this conversation. We're thinking, well, you know, we've became friends. And what's the most powerful connection people can have with each other is friendship. And we thought, well, we don't need formal platforms to be able to do something in our society. All we need is our friendship. Last March, Salam Shalom hosted Muslim and Jewish delegations from Paris, Brussels, London and Oslo for a European Day of Solidarity in response to the attacks in Paris. Around the same time, they held a solidarity walk that began just outside Amsterdam's stately Portuguese synagogue. 
Dixieland band played while hundreds of people stood under the gaze of a statue called the Dock Worker, which honors a strike Amsterdam dock workers held protesting the treatment of the city's Jews during the Nazi occupation. There were men wearing yarmulkes, women in headscarves, and bearded older men in hooded Moroccan jalabas all mingling together. I asked them why they'd come. We're trying just to prove that everybody's the same. And we have to fight against racism, you know. And can I just ask, are you a Muslim? Yeah. My name is Bertine Minko. And your name is? It's Kenza. What's your background? Uh, Morocco. You're, you're Moroccan? And your background, ma'am? I'm Dutch and I'm Jewish. And uh, we are friends, Kenza and me, and uh, we believe that uh, there's, we have much more in common than, uh, than we are different from one another. And uh, we are here because we are, believe that the soft powers will win at the end. The group walked through the city to various Jewish and Muslim locations where each person left a flower. A group of Jewish women handed the last of the flowers to another group of headscarved Muslim women at the Al-Kabir Mosque the walk's final destination. I asked the women at the mosque what they thought of the gesture. Yeah, lovely. And a lot of these people are Jewish. What do you think of that? People are people. Muslim, Jewish or Christian, it doesn't matter. Everyone should respect each other. Inside the packed Al-Kabir Mosque, the crowd listened to speeches from a rabbi and imam standing side by side, and there was even a little boy rapping about tolerance. As warm and well-meaning as this march was, it's been a far cry from reality. Anti-Semitic attacks in the Netherlands have doubled since last year. According to the anti-Semitism monitor run by the Dutch Jewish organization CIDI, the Center for Information and Documentation Israel, not only are there more incidents, but they're more public. These aren't internet trolls or other written offenses. These are in-your-face verbal and physical attacks. CIDI researcher Guy Muller crunches the numbers. So we would conclude that anti-Semitic incidents become harsher, heavier People telling Jews should be gassed or should be regassed, or Hitler was right or Hitler did not kill enough Jews. Muller says the increase in anti-Semitic incidents closely correlates with events in the Middle East, like Israel's military operations in Gaza last year. This uptick in attacks in Holland and across Europe has led to an increased police presence in front of Jewish schools and institutions. Muller says the reaction to this has been twofold. On the one hand, we got a sense of security because we saw our organizations and institutions are being secured by police and the government. On the other hand, people became very aware that there is a need for this form of security. Rabbi Lodi van der Kamp is seeing this in his classroom as well. I was once teaching a class of five girls, Orthodox Jewish girls, and we came to talk about different religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. So one girl suddenly... Out of the blue, she said, you know, all Muslims hate us. So... Uh, what did you think when they said that? I asked them, where do you know this from? Do you know Muslims? You know, where are you from? Well, my, my, my mother says so, my parents, you know. You sounded alarmed. Yes, yes. We are very biased as a Jewish community against Muslims. The same way as the Muslim community is very biased against Jews. And then there, you feel there's a lot of work to do. Work 
that the government is not making any easier. The PVV, or the Freedom Party, led by Geert Wilders, is arguably Europe's most effective extreme right-wing, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim political party. The PVV's popularity has forced most mainstream Dutch political parties and society as a whole to shift to the right. This has meant that Fatima Elatik and Rabbi van der Kamp's high-profile cooperation has come at a price. Gestures like the Solidarity Walk may give those who participate a sense of accomplishment, but van der Kamp and Elatik acknowledge it's an uphill battle. The Salam Shalom Facebook page was recently shut down due to anonymous complaints of discrimination, although it's back up again for the moment. Plus, Fundacom's work has led him to develop relationships with Muslims in the community who have been openly critical of Israeli politics. He says there's been a personal price to pay. I've been publicly blackballed by segments of the Jewish community because I've been in contact with Muslims who have got the political views of Gaza. Blackballed? Yes. Both Fundacomp and Fatima Elitik say they intend to carry on, despite the personal threats and consequences. And it's made them more determined to find people who think that finding common ground is more important than winning arguments or scoring points. They say an important part of their success is that sometimes they must agree to disagree. We don't select people because of their political opinions on the situation in Israel and Palestine. We select the people on their willingness to do better here in our society in Holland. Why should I let political arguments influence my friendship with these people? I try to make the connection on a human level with them, and this is what we do. But we agree on one thing. These tensions, we don't need them in our society here. And the best way we can avoid them is by standing together in the most important times that we need to. Fatima can go on Sunday to a pro-Palestinian demonstration. I can go on Monday to a pro-Israel demonstration if I would go. Yeah. And on Tuesday, we sit together to carry on again. Fundacomp and Elitik's relationship will no doubt be tested in the coming months. Thousands of Muslim migrants are crossing the Netherlands' borders, and the anti-Muslim Freedom Party is currently projected to win the next election. Fundacomp and Elitik's commitment to dialogue through friendship is likely to be more important than ever. For America Abroad, I'm Jonathan Gruber in Amsterdam. You're listening to Searching for Religious Common Ground. When we come back, the most basic common ground. In every tradition, even secular humanism, there's a point where you say the golden rule is applicable. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Searching for Religious Common Ground on America Abroad. 
So how do you get people to respect each other's religions when their fundamental beliefs are really different? This can be especially difficult in conflict zones, where the first priority is just to survive. Chris Seipel is a devout Christian and former U.S. Marine who's been working on this issue for the last decade with his organization, the Institute for Global Engagement. It works at the intersection of faith and international affairs. Most people have been taught not to talk about religion and politics in polite company. So people get quite squirmy when you talk about religion, and you have to be able to do that in a sensitive and thoughtful way, both for people of faith, but then also for the realpolitik types who have no time for that because they don't see that as a factor. Seipel and his team use a peace-building strategy he calls Rescue, Restore, and Return. He used this method throughout Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, most recently in Iraq. Rescue is help anybody who's fled ISIS and try to get them eventually restore is deal with trauma types issues, build relationships, renew relationships, and then return is work for a geopolitical solution that says you can go back home. But going back home may not be possible for some time, so the next option would be to stay in the neighborhood. Could you stay in Jordan? Can you stay in Lebanon? Can you stay in Kurdistan? But before the rescue, restore, and return process can even begin, there has to be an opening. Seipel says leaders in many conflict zones aren't always open to dialogue, and he gets that. And, I'm, hey, I'm white, blue eyes, and six feet tall and a former Marine. I am, I am CIA every time I go someplace. Uh, but what happens is this, is one, is you, A, get invited to go to these places. We don't go any place where we're not invited. Uh, B, you listen to understand. And C, you realize that the, the, the solution set is always there among the, the folks who live there. It always is there. There are good people who want to be a part of the solution set. And so you try to come alongside them, creating the safe space that they want. It's not about what part of the country you're from or even what you believe in. It's about understanding the other at a basic human level. In Pakistan, the people in Islamabad will say, you know, all the crazy people live up in Peshawar. And then in Peshawar, they say, well, you know, all the crazy people live down in, in Banu. And in Banu, they say, the crazy people live in the tribal areas. So everybody wants to say, that's not us. But we take a step back, and if you don't get into some of the nuance, you don't understand that there's all kinds of points of leverage based on people of goodwill in very difficult places who want to do the right thing. You find them, and you don't impose. You come alongside what they're already doing. Case in point, a few years back, Saipal was invited to meet with Pakistan's then-chief minister of the Northwest Frontier Province, a known pro-Sharia, anti-American leader in the region. Saipal brought this minister to America, his first visit to a non-Muslim-majority country. We talk about things like Muhammad and the Quran and our most irreconcilable differences, but we do so out of respect. We actually did fellowships for students in Banu in the heart of Taliban country, to, and, and talk about how, do the, how does the Quran and their understanding of religion and their cultural context, what does it say about the other and about the minority at the, at the student level? We've done that. We've included folks from Pakistan in much of our um, discussions about religion, security, and citizenship all over the world, and given them a platform to say, that's not Pakistan, that's not my Islam. With all these challenges, it's tempting to try to just deal with differences on a secular level and cut religion out. That's certainly what secular academic elites would like to do. <laughs> but it's impossible because faith permeates every sector. 
84% of the world believes in something greater than themselves. When violence comes, when conflict comes, when life, death, marriage come, they want meaning. Whether you agree with religion or not, religion provides meaning. And it provides a moral baseline. And the way that we try to operate is to say, look, I don't care what your moral point of departure is. I know what mine is. But in every tradition, even secular humanism, there's a point where you say the golden rule is applicable. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So that's the argument that we try to make is that you can't ignore it. If you ignore it, you'll make the situation worse. Why not harness it and get people to talk about these things? Chris Seipel is chairman of the board of the Institute for Global Engagement. It's based in Arlington, Virginia. The places Chris Seipel works are some of the most critical conflict zones in the world. But even in the U.S., one of the most religiously tolerant nations, there are cases of serious conflict. To help deal with these situations, there are interfaith councils, conferences, and committees all over the country, including Washington, D.C. My name is Jerry Surratt. I'm a rabbi. I'm also the executive director of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington, which is the premier interfaith organization in the Washington area. The D.C. Interfaith Conference has been around for nearly 40 years. We represent 11 historic faith traditions. We go, I like to say, from Baha'i to Zoroastrian. At, at this point, we go from B to Z. We're, we're hoping for the Adventists or the Antiochian Christians. or uh, we'll, we'll see, but it's a very diverse and very venerable organization. Last year, the group was called in to settle an interfaith dispute at George Washington University. One of the uh, students of the Jewish faith visited India, and uh, especially he visited the religious places and was very much impressed uh, by this symbol, which we call swastika. Nanik Lahori is a Hindu leader in the D.C. area and a member of the conference for the past two decades. Now, swastika in uh, Hindu faith is a very auspicious symbol, and it represents our Hindu philosophy. So what he did was basically to educate the masses or to spread the positive message. He put the, that symbol on the bulletin board of the George Washington University. So he may have, in naivete, uh, wanted to educate, but obviously the response was this, somebody is putting a hate symbol because of ignorance. Some people, they got offended, and they complained to the president, and he was really dismissed uh, from the university. And the uh, president of the university, he bought the display of that symbol uh, in the university campus any time at, at that time or in future. This is where the Interfaith Conference got involved. The problem was the president saying this, there can be no use of a swastika in any context and no appearance of a swastika on our campus. That sends a message that Hindus and Jains and Zoroastrians and other communities, they can't use that symbol on campus. It ruins the welcome if the university is going to be a place not only of learning but of multiculturalism and diversity. He's in effect saying we don't want Hindu students to be on our campus and to use their own symbols. That was the problem. And Rabbi Sarada and the Interfaith Conference had a solution. He, along with other faith groups, petitioned George Washington's president through a letter-writing campaign. We, in our letter to the university, said we understand that the swastika has been abused, or a swastika, the Nazi swastika, has, has disfigured buildings on this campus, but you can't 
if you want to be welcoming, you can't forbid the display in any context with any motivation of a religious symbol that's important to a community. The IFC made a compelling case that the university had acted hastily. And uh, that particular decision was withdrawn and the student was reinstated uh, to the happy ending. This could not have happened without the involvement of the IFC. So that's where we came in. We came in as an to try to help resolve the conflict. We've also offered to the university, as we would offer to anybody, to do an educational program. The cause of all the problems is ignorance. Those who get educated, including the president of George Washington University, now he has got the clear view of what the swastika is. So here at the IFC, we would like to really depend upon educating the masses. And to that end, the Interfaith Conference has produced a pamphlet, which, they hope, will help prevent future incidents involving the Hindu swastika. But as Rabbi Sarada is quick to admit, not every case is as clear-cut, and most don't have happy endings. He says, with so many different faiths, customs and traditions, misunderstandings and misdeeds are inevitable— And with each victory comes new challenges. I think interfaith dialogue is a means, maybe the best means, to increase understanding across cultures and communities. But you can't blame Judaism for what Jews do. You can't blame Hinduism for what Hindus do. I mean, these are beautiful spiritual practices, and we are imperfect human beings trying to understand them and walk along those paths. So... I would say the limitation of interfaith dialogue is the limitation of human beings. You're listening to Searching for Religious Common Ground. Coming up, we visit Cordoba, Spain, where a mosque and a cathedral have been sharing the same hallowed ground for centuries. Both the Catholics and the Muslims can argue on historical grounds that it has been a sacred space for them for some time. And that, of course, makes it quite difficult to uh, say, okay, can we now share this sacred space because of the long history that went before it. Visit our website for images, special features, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Searching for Religious Common Ground on America Abroad. Nowhere in the world is the need for religious dialogue more pronounced than in the Middle East. I wouldn't necessarily say that the violence that we're seeing now is unprecedented in all of history, but it's certainly unprecedented in modern Arab history. Geneve Abdo is a fellow at the Stimson Center in Washington. She says the religious divide between Sunni and Shia goes back a long way, but has been made worse by recent events. Before the Arab uprisings even began, there were in many countries, including Iraq and Syria, Egypt, there had been a great return to sort of religious identity as being sort of the primary identity in some countries. Beginning in the 1980s and 90s, Islamist groups were becoming prevalent across the Middle East, encouraging a unified Muslim identity across nations, and at the same time driving a stronger wedge between the Sunni and Shia. Then when the uprisings happened, in addition to the sort of Islamization of societies, you also had the collapse of some states or the near collapse of the state, of the government. And this allowed for 
even more of this intensification of an identity that wasn't based on nationalism. It was based on religion. And this is why there is now such a great, um, fierce struggle going on. She adds that state leaders in Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain have used this sectarian divide to fuel their own political interests. But Abdo says despite the violence, there are ways of bringing the two groups together. She and others have been working with the Rafiq Hariri Center, part of the Atlantic Council, to create a roadmap for the next president to address the conflict in the Middle East. One idea, she says, is to move the conversation away from religion. I think even in a, in a country such as Iraq, there is still the potential for Shia and Sunni dialogue about many issues, not just about religion, but about, you know, cooperating on basic services, on electricity, on water consumption. On So it's been suggested, for example, that if you want to have dialogue between the Shia and the Sunni, have it over issues of mutual interest, not issues that divide them initially until trust is developed. Without that trust, the conversation can't even begin. Three years ago, I was invited to a conference, for example, in Alexandria, Egypt, that was supposed to involve the different competing sides, not necessarily the Shia Sunni, because there are hardly any Shia in Egypt, but at that time, it was between the Muslim Brotherhood and other competing groups. And most of the groups didn't even show up. And so I think it's important when people are at the height of these kind of conflicts, that there has to be some other issue bringing them together with a common objective other than the one that they're fighting about. Also, it's not enough for these conversations to happen only between high-level decision-makers. People need to be involved on the local level. As we've heard earlier in the program, neighbors talking to neighbors. The key is inclusivity. The key is to make sure that minorities or majorities, whichever they might be, um, are citizens of, of equal standing. And that's what it's about. A lot of this is about people not feeling that they are citizens of a state. So that's why they don't care about nationalism anymore, because they're, they're not, they don't feel that they are citizens. And this is, I think, what exacerbates this need to turn to some other identity that becomes more important. Geneve Abdo and others are now looking at who should be responsible for getting the dialogue started. I know NGOs have also been very involved in Iraq and in other countries in the Arab world in having these kinds of dialogues, but it will take time. She's currently working on a bipartisan roadmap for future administrations on how to handle the situation in the Middle East. We're also dealing with issues, you know, to what degree the United States should get involved at all. I mean, that's a big question that we're grappling with. In some cases and in some areas, perhaps there is no role for Western governments. Perhaps it's just an internal problem that needs to be solved within Arab societies. So these are some of the issues that we're addressing. Their report will be released early next year.
finally today, we go full circle, back to Europe where tensions between Muslims and other religious groups have reached new highs. Spain is no stranger to these conflicts. There, Muslims and Christians have been hashing it out for centuries. In the 8th century, Muslim forces invaded Spain. They built a grand mosque to crown their empire in the southern city of Córdoba. Muslims ruled Spain until the Catholics defeated them 500 years later. Rather than demolishing the mosque, as was normal practice, the Catholics decided to build a cathedral in it. And they've controlled the site ever since. Still, the mosque cathedral, as it's commonly known, remains the most important symbol of Islam in Spain. And this has fueled a fierce debate over how different religions can coexist in this shared, sacred space. Katie Manning has our story. A Muslim tourist named Ashraf eats gelato with his young daughter and wife, who wears a headscarf. Ashraf took time off from his job as a pediatrician in England, packed his prayer mat, and flew to Cordoba yesterday. He's dreamed of coming here since he was nine years old and living in Syria. So there is so much poetry, there is so much nostalgia actually, you know, still vibrating actually in these places. Specifically, it's not only part of a main part of Islamic history, it's again main part of the Arab culture as well. For many Muslims, it's a reminder of a glorious period in their past. For many Christians in Spain, it's ancient history, since it hasn't been a place of worship for Muslims since 1236. Today, it's a major tourist site, as well as a religious one. About 100 visitors mill about, snapping pictures and fanning themselves in the heat. Ashraf totes his prayer mat past a heavy gate. He hasn't laid it out yet today because he's waiting to pray at the site. But guards stop him at the entrance and tell him he's not allowed to pray. Anyone that looks Middle Eastern is stopped and reminded they're entering a cathedral, not a mosque. You know, I think it is disappointing. And there is a space for everyone there. So I think Muslim visitors should be allowed to pray if they wish. He says he wants all tourists to be treated the same when they visit, regardless of religion. Ashraf wanders through the courtyard with his family to line up for audio guides. Push the number in the audio guide and then play, okay? The exit door they the file into a space big enough for 40,000 people, along with hundreds of other tourists speaking different languages. Pink, gray, and white marble columns hold up Moorish horseshoe-shaped arches, striped like candy canes. The arches surround a chapel in the center of the building. Tiny details cover every square inch, reaching up the walls beyond where the eye can see. There are Cuban mahogany sculptures, gold inlay, bronze vines, and angels cloaked in granite. Spanish Catholics and Muslims have had a strained relationship for centuries, even before the Islamic invasion. But in recent years, that hostility has escalated. This year in June, a gunman linked to ISIS killed 38 people in a Spanish hotel in Tunisia. Our cameraman cuts through a beach club and is now just behind the fleeing gunman as fighting between him and the police intensifies. A Pew Research study shows about 60% of Spaniards say they are very worried about Islamic extremism. There's also widespread discrimination against Christians in the Muslim world. That tension has made its way into interreligious dialogue over the mosque cathedral. In an interview with a local news outlet, the Cordoba bishop, Demetrio Fernandez, says he's concerned about accepting the demands of the Muslim community. Bishop Fernandez says that Islam as a religion doesn't allow Muslims to pray together with Catholics anywhere in the world. 
Therefore, when Muslims ask to join them, they're actually ordering us to leave. Interreligious dialogue expert Pim Falkenberg says it's not easy for any religion to simply share a religious space. Falkenberg teaches about Muslim-Catholic dialogue as a professor at the Catholic University of America in D.C. The different religions uh, have a kind of protective shield, so to say, around their own identification of the relation with the sacred. Um, and the problem is, of course, if you want to, for instance, pray together, there are all kinds of boundaries that different religions have uh, in order to do so. Um, the most important of them is, of course, the idea of sacred space. Both the Catholics and the Muslims can argue on historical grounds that it has been a sacred space for them for some time. And that, of course, makes it quite difficult to uh, say, okay, can we now share this sacred space because of the long history that went before it. Today, hundreds of Catholics worship as they've done during Sunday Mass for nearly 800 years. Falkenberg says the Catholics have the most at stake. They don't want to lose their sacred space. So the only way to start a productive dialogue is to turn down the heat. I don't think that it would be wise to start a possible uh, dialogue or a possible uh, encounter between the two with these historical questions right away, because first you need to build trust. And of course we are now in a situation that the trust is far away. So the question is, how can you help to build up trust? A local high school science teacher named Miguel Santiago grew up just blocks away from the mosque cathedral. A gold cross hangs from his neck, but despite his religious beliefs, he doesn't support the Catholic Church's management of the site. En un espacio arquitectónicamente que es una mezcla. Miguel says the monument brings together different cultures and art. What better way in a world full of conflict to say that we can come together? These rocks here should show us that humankind can coexist. In 2006, a change in Spanish law allowed the church to turn its unofficial control into legal ownership under a tax exemption. The Catholic Church is taking control of thousands of properties and assets across Spain under this same law. But it wasn't until the church registered the mosque cathedral that the dispute ramped up. Muslim leader Isabel Romero is the director of Together Islam an organization that represents Muslims in Spain. She tried reaching out to the Cordoba diocese, but didn't get an answer. She says, there's nothing I can do about that. For this conversation to work, the other party has to want to talk. All I can do is keep my door open. Romero has tabled the question of allowing Muslims to pray at the site. Romero says, I respect that the owner is the Catholic Church. The problem is that there needs to be more tolerance and a better understanding of Muslims' role in its history. Romero regularly works with Catholics throughout Spain. She says she wants to protect that relationship not anger the Cordoba diocese. She says it's not an easy path. Being confrontational won't get us anywhere. If the Catholic Church is forced to do things against its will, there will be negative consequences for our future relationship. Romero wants to see a more genuine integration for Muslims in Spain, a predominantly Catholic nation. 
fighting with the Catholic Church in Cordoba won't help her goal. Pim Valkenberg from the Catholic University says the issue is bigger than just the mosque cathedral. I think, in fact, the question whether it was a church before it became a mosque um, is historically important, but is not decisive. I mean, it's not, it's not uh, a question who has the oldest rights, because, as you yourself said, it was a Roman temple before it. So then you would say, okay, demolish the church, demolish the mosque, let's build a Roman temple. Well, that doesn't work, of course. So it is not so much about history. It's about how do we deal with power relationship and the change in power relationships. I think that's really what is behind it. And that's why I think that uh, it would not be... Um, let's say, um, the most important matter to find out what was historically first, the most important matter is to build trust between the two faith communities. Back at the mosque cathedral, a tour leader points to an inscription that's partially polished away. Thousands of hands have touched it over hundreds of years. And all around the arch, you find Arabic inscriptions in where is written the name of Allah. The Allah inscriptions were never erased. Because uh, it was considered uh, that uh, doesn't matter, the name is the same God for everybody. For many, the mosque cathedral still symbolizes the potential for interreligious harmony. But religious pluralism at sacred sites is a challenging goal. Muslims, Catholics, and secular groups may have a long way to go to settle their differences. For America Abroad, this is Katie Manning in Cordoba, Spain. The Mosque Cathedral in Cordoba is a fitting symbol, two major religions vying for supremacy and then realizing that the only solution is coexistence, no matter how uneasy that coexistence may be. You've been listening to Searching for Religious Common Ground. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Barry Finkel and Jackson Brader. Audio engineering support was provided by Phil Richards and Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the El Hebri Foundation and the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art. PRI Public Radio International.